And you guys, I forgot, keep uh, Larry Coleman in prayer. He's not doing well. He's feeling dizzy. And always Erica and Bob Bowman uh, lift him up in prayer. And we've got a a few people that are not not doing well. So make sure we keep the body in prayer, whether it's spiritual needs, physical needs. That's why we're the body of Christ. We're in the 24th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. Brian has taught, Pastor Brian taught verse, uh, chapter 22 and 23. And David, he has gone down to Keli, uh, and he has went down there because he delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. And the thanks, I'm amazed, the thanks he receives by doing that, they are going to give him up. If he stays there, they're going to go and let Saul know that he's there. So David and his 600 merry men, they scatter in different direction. David goes down to the wilderness of Ziph. Saul searches for him there. And then Jonathan goes down at the wilderness of Ziph, and he encourages his friend in the Lord. And then they reaffirm the covenant there. And it seems Once again, everyone is ratting David out. It seems as as if he has no one in his corner. Because the Ziphites, they run and tell Saul also that David is hiding in the wilderness of Ziph. So he leaves from the wilderness of Ziph and he flees to the wilderness of Maon. And Saul is still hunting him down like a rabid dog. and, And he begins... As he begins to surround David, of course, the Lord, our God, steps in. And in uh, chapter 23, I'll read chapter 23, verse 27 through 29, it says, But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the stronghold at En Gedi. En Gedi is a, they tell me it's a beautiful place. I know there's a lot of caverns there, so you can hide out there. There's water flowing through the caverns. So that was one of the favorite places for David. And I'm reminded in the first chapter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul points out that people who deny God It's not because of the lack of evidence. For not only do men and women know that there is a God by the outward show of evidence, that's called general grace. Romans chapter 1, the latter part of verse 20 tells us, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they, humanity, are without excuse. Unbelievers, just as we once did at one time, we reject the God whom we know out of moral rebellion. Romans eighteen nineteen of chapter 1 also tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth, hold the truth down in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God 
is manifest in them. It's revealed in them. For God has shown it to them. Then verse 21 of that same chapter, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. And the result of that but became futile or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When the Bible talks about justification by faith, Paul gives us a couple or three model people. He speaks of Abraham. He speaks of Moses and David. But if Paul wanted to give a clear example of unbelief, we would have We wouldn't have to go any further than King Saul. Saul, he chose the path of his own will rather than the will of God. He is a picture of everyone today who knows the truth of God but suppresses that truth. Saul thought because he was anointed king that the rules did not apply to him. So he could stave off all of the consequences of his sin, all of his rebellion against God. And it's just as postmodern man does today. He, say, he says we don't need God. Postmodernism in a nutshell is my reality is my reality and your reality is your reality. There's no absolutes. And so they allow technology and, and, and uh economics and any other thing they allow to be their God. And God is saying, no, I alone am God. And sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with me. Saul is about to run head on into a day of reckoning. God has given him signpost after signpost after signpost. That engine check light has been on in the heart of Saul. And he's denying that it's there. But Saul, because of his unbelief, is about to be weighed in the balances and he's going to be found lacking. So verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. We don't know how long it took Saul to subdue the Philistines, only that when he returned, you would think that he would have taken a break, took a rest, but he turns all of his energy right back to chasing after David. That shows that not all human success is a sign of God's favor. Once again, He's almost had a great victory over the Philistines. You would think he, he, he would give God the praise, but he thinks this comes from his walk with the Lord, even though his walk is, is in rebellion. Uh, I'm reminded of Abraham and Sarah when they went down to Egypt. And Abraham, we know the account. Sarah, tell them that you're my, I'm your brother, so they won't harm me or you. And when he gets there, sure enough, Ahimelech sees them and and takes Sarah into his harem. But God steps in and reveals himself to Ahimelech. And so when they left, they leave leave with, with camels and herds and all of these things. And people think it's because of Abraham. But it wasn't because of Abraham. 
He was walking not in fellowship with the Lord because God had told him not to go down. But it was because of Sarah submitting to her husband that the Lord blessed in that circumstance. So just because we are, it seems as if we're having victories in the Lord, God is gracious. But are we walking in obedience with the Lord? That matters. It reminds me also of Pharaoh. Ten successive plagues, God giving him the opportunity to repent and come to know Yahweh God. But it didn't turn out that way. In the same way, Saul persisted in his murderous efforts against David. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 6 tells us this is exactly what Saul is doing. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's the goal. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what Saul, that's what's waiting for Saul. Verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, elite force, Navy SEALs from all Israel, and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. That must be a terrifying place there. At this point in time, David has no one to lean on but God, and that's the best position we could ever be in. It's when we trust We are trusting and serving the Lord. You will have the blessings of knowing that intimate relationship with the Lord. And he will always show up at the right appropriate time. But the opposite is also true of those who turn their backs on God. They can be sure that the day of God's judgment will arrive. And it often uh, arrives when we don't think it will. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Remember, he had to go to the restroom. Anytime he was not in the camp of Israel, but the law said, Deuteronomy, I think chapter 25, tells, tells us, anytime you had to go and relieve yourself, You had to go outside the camp. Now, they're already outside the camp. And it just so happens Saul goes into the same cavern, goes into the same cave that David and his men are hiding in. They're huddled up like little mice. And all of a sudden, here comes the king of Israel going in. And he has to relieve himself. I love the King James. The King James says he uncovered his feet. It says this. So he came to the sheepfold by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Saul is secure. Saul is at home. He doesn't have a care in the world. He's a proud man. But the Bible tells us God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And, you know, we can forget how ruthless God Almighty can be when it comes to him humbling someone. 
Job tells us, God, only God can look at the proud and humble him. Well, Saul needs to be humble. God has been trying to break this man time and time again. Can you imagine one of, one of the greatest things I fear, one of, one of them is speaking in public. Number two is ever having to go into a stall, and I think I have the door locked, and someone opens it up, and there I am. <laughs> That's terrifying. It's never happened to me. But wouldn't that be terrifying to you guys? I think about things like that. Imagine prideful Saul going in thinking he's alone, and they're saying, is that Saul? And they're watching him. And then the story begins. Everyone is thinking, and I'm sure they're whispering to David, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Here's our opportunity. Thank you, Lord, giving us a chance to do what we have been wanting to do, slay Saul. That's what they're geared to. That's what they want to do. But that wasn't the day of the Lord for his reckoning yet. It says, and David arose. Imagine David going, getting as close as he he could to Saul's garment. And they're thinking, kill him, kill him, kill him. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. When David comes back to them, instead of Saul's blood on his knife, he shows them Saul's royal robe. And you better believe they were livid. They were upset. They couldn't believe it. And it wasn't a lack of of, of bravado or a lack of nerve that stayed David's hand because verse 5 tells us now it happened after that, after he had cut a piece of Saul's robe. David's heart troubled him. The King James says smote him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David's heart smote him after he had cut off the corner of his robe. Why did his heart smote him? Why did his heart trouble him? David knew that this royal robe that Saul wore showed his authority, showed his leadership in Israel as being the king. Remember in chapter 15, when uh, Samuel finally gets there and Saul had made the offerings and everything and, and, and Samuel turns away to go back to Ramah to his home and a, a Saul grabs his garment and tears it. Saul said, today the kingdom is torn away from you. No more authority there. And David knew when he cut off the corner of his garment that the transfer, what it signified, the transfer of power and authority from the house of Saul had come to the house of David, but it wasn't God's timing. And David, when he did that, he reviled himself with the fact that he was striking out against God because God is the only one that can say, I abdicate you from the throne. He's the only one that can say, okay, your days is over. I'm making a change. 
and it wasn't God's time. Even now, of all the things Saul has did, I believe God was still giving him an opportunity to repent and give his life to him. God is sovereign. He does not need our help for anything. And some people, when they're in a difficult situation, we like to get out of them as quickly as we can. But God has us there for a reason. God has us there for a purpose. And we must trust him and allow him to work in our lives until it's his time because we're on his timing. Uh, One of the elders said, you know, I don't like God's timing. (laughs) I can say that too at times. But it doesn't matter if we like his timing or not. His timing is best. He knows what he's doing. Verse 7 tells us, so David restrained his servants. They were wanting to attack Saul with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Now, I want to reflect on what happened here, because what would we have did to our enemy? And we want to see, look at David's reasoning, and he's reasoning through God's providence, because God is allowing all of these things to happen. David would have agreed with his men that Saul was worthy of death. Saul didn't deserve any mercy because Saul had slain all of those priests of Nob and he had did many other things. But God is giving not only Saul an opportunity to change his ways and repent, but what is God doing with David? He's testing David because God often tests his servants to reveal what is in our hearts. So God sets up things and, and navigates ways to see how we will react and what is truly in our hearts. When Jonah went to Joppa, he was fleeing. And there was a boat there right ready for him to leave and flee to Tarshish. That wasn't God's fault. God facilitated all of that. So Jonah can't say, well, the boat was there. Lord, your boat was there to go to Tarshish, so I went. But once again, God was testing Jonah's faithfulness. In the same way, God tests us in the presence of opportunity to sin in temptations. What are we going to do? I heard one uh, One of my instructors says, it's easy for someone to hold a brick in their hand for a little while. That's like obeying the law or trying to follow the Lord out of, I can do it, I can do it. But without the Holy Spirit, sooner or later you will drop it. And that's what he's learning right now. Saul is learning, I need you, Lord. I need to repent of my sins. And David is also saying, man, everyone is snitching on me. Everywhere I turn, even when I'm trying to do the right thing, the enemy is after me. Here's my opportunity to slay Saul, but I won't do it. And the only reason David does not do that 
is this humility towards the Lord. It's the weight of the word on his heart that he has learned and the intimacy with the Lord. And that keeps him from making this great error. Because if David would have did that, if David would have slew Saul at this time, we have to remember that God has already said through Samuel, the kingdom is going to be yours. It wasn't that it was never going to be his. The promise had been made to him. It was how he was going to get the kingdom. Would he wait on the Lord and allow the Lord to navigate everything? God is working in David, just like he's working in us. He's already said, hey, you're sealed with the spirit of redemption. You're going to make it to heaven. But the key is, how are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? I didn't say this. The Holy Spirit said this through Paul. Some will make it with smoke paraphrasing on them. Now, you can take that any way you want to take it, but that's what the Scripture says. My point is, God has great and precious promises for us. And every time we stray from the path of obedience, all the things that the Lord would enjoy giving us and lavishing on us because we're walking in obedience to his word and we're walking by faith, trusting in him no matter what the circumstance or the situation looks like, God is saying, I've got this. You're not steering the ship. I am. Trust me. The scripture says, and lean not to your own understanding. And I'm going to get you where you need to go. And when I get you there and when, I, when you see what I have for you, whether it's for you, for your family, because I'm working. We're learning in the book of John. Jesus says, I work, my father work, and I am always working. I tell you all the time, he's working for our benefit. He's working for our good. So what we need to do is what David did. When, we had, when he had an opportunity to slay his enemy, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to allow the Lord to avenge me. What if he would have did that? He would have got the kingdom. He would have still been the, the king of Israel. But his authority would have diminished, his character would have diminished those men that were in the cage with, in the cave with him. They would have looked at him like an ordinary man not as the leader, not as the soon-to-be king of Israel. They looked at him with, this man is a man of character, of godly character, and I will follow him through the fire or anywhere else because I know that he's in touch with God. That's why when the world is crumbling around you, crumbling around your family, and the unbelievers are looking and they're saying, why do you still go to church? Why do you still have a smile on your face? Why, how can you still wake up and, and just do the things that you have to do in life every day? It's because you know God and you have a personal relationship with him. And no matter how heavy the weight may seem at times, 
God has you. You trust in him. That puts a smile on his face, and that gives us grace to handle whatever comes our way. And that's what David does here. Not even the throne would be enough for David if he would have killed Saul. uh, David is learning the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He's learning all of these things that he would have never learned if he would have killed Saul. Because God is trying him. God is putting pressure on him. And he comes through. David is, this is one of the apex of David's life, one of the pinnacles of his life that he did this. It tells us, it says in Psalms 119, 9 through 11, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. That's what David has been doing all of his life. He says, with my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your words I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what being in the word every day will do for the believer. When temptation comes, when pressure arrives, when you don't know what you're, how you're going to make in meets. But we're in the word and we're in prayer. And somehow, some way, God comforts us and gives us that peace that surpasses all understanding. It tells us in verse 7, remember, how can we forget Jacob, the trickster, the hill catcher? Remember when God changed his name? We had wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and God changed his, changed his name to Israel. Some say prince of the Lord. I like governed by God because that's what I need more and more of, to be governed by God, that he leads me. No matter how my flesh wants to react to certain things, no matter how irritated, no matter how I think the world is caving in on me, I keep that sense of peace because he gives me that peace and he rules my spirit and I'm changed into a different man. Verse 7 tells us, So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, so there had to be quite a bit of time before Saul. When I picture this, I'm thinking Saul has went back on a hill or a mountain and David is down in the cavern And now he can call out to Saul because if Saul turns around with his men, they still have a way of escape. He says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. The only way David could have did this, walk in this kind of humility, is because of the word of God that he's been meditating on and because of what he just did inside of the cave that could, would make him react this way on the outside of the cave. It's all of that humility. It's all of that trusting in the Lord that the Lord is going to lead him to where he belongs. And he bows down and he's walking in submission. We are always empowered. If you don't think God empowers you, 
I'm going to say it. You might not be walking in obedience because the more you walk in obedience to God's word, the more empowered you will, will be. That's how it works. The more confident you will be. It's when I'm straddling the fence. And when the, it's when I'm straddling the fence that I kind of, and I'm vacillating. That's when I wonder, should I speak up? I know this is wrong, but I'm not even walking the way I should walk. So I don't say anything, I cower. But it's when you're walking in obedience with the Lord. The righteous, the Bible says, is as bold as a lion. And the reason they're as bold as a lion, they're walking in obedience with the Lord. That's why David can go outside this cave and bow down and begin to speak to the Lord. Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 9, and David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? David does something wise here. He puts the blame on Saul's cabinet. And David knows that Saul has started all of this and ensure the men around him are egging him on to follow David and kill him. But David is trying to bring repentance and humility to Saul. He, he, David already has the upper hand because he didn't slay him. So that, that even gives Saul more motive to listen to him. And David goes to Saul. Notice he bows down to the ground. So he goes to Saul with the spirit of generous reconciliation. People, when people offend us, this is a good question. When people do us wrong, when people offend us, do we go to them in a spirit of reconciliation, wanting to make everything right? Or do we go with, I can't wait to give them a piece of my mind to I need all the mind I have. I can't, give any, I can't afford to give anybody a piece of my mind. But David goes to Saul in the spirit of reconciliation. That's why God is blessing this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. As believers, that's the end game. That's our goal. That's what we should be about, reconciliating enemies of God to God. So he says in verse 10, David speaking, look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you, and he's right. The Lord delivered you today into my hand because he's testing David in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Notice what he says. I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord. Now, people have taken maybe not so much this verse 
I forget, I think it's in First Chronicle where uh, one of the prophets says, do not touch the Lord's anointed or do his prophets no harm. And many leaders, many pastors, teachers, or whoever has, or has taken that verse and says, hey, I'm above reproach. The pastor is above reproach. The elder is above reproach. So you don't have to question him. You don't have to uh, never question him because he has all of the authority. He is the only one in touch with the Lord. That's bogus. And I know you guys would never do that with me anyway. <laughs> but people try that. And David is not saying that here. That's a bunch of foolishness. If I need to be reproved, well, the faithful wounds of a friend, that's what I need. Not only me, not only the pastors, not only the elders, anyone of the household of faith that needs to be reproved, that's another church member can go and do those things. But David is saying, God has placed Saul in this position as king. And even if I don't care for Saul, I can despise Saul. So what? I must respect the office of Saul. And I need to do that a lot better with our president. I'm the first one to say that. I need to do better with that. Lord, give me grace. But that's what he's saying here. God appointed him. God allowed him to be king. And so just because of that office, I have to give him due respect. And it smote David's heart even that he cut off the hem of his robe there. God will fight our battles if we allow him to. If you want to fight your own battle, God will step back. Jesus will step back and say, go for it. Bang your head on that wall until you get tired, and then you can call me, and I will show up. But if we wait on the Lord and be of good courage, he has promised to fight our battles. We can rest in peace. Verse 11, David says, moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. I'm sure at this time Saul probably glanced down. He probably hasn't even noticed and sees his garment has been cut. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. By that time, if that was me and I was Saul, I probably would have to go to another cave. <laughs> Man, I was that close to death. <laughs> I did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. The man of faith, David, has declined to harm Saul in any way, and for all of these years, Saul has been chasing David to kill him. David proves that he's a man of character. He's a man of principle. And also by that, God is going to bless him in that. He does Saul no harm. And that's the way it should be with every believer. Let people talk about you. If people want to slander your name, they slander the name of Jesus Christ. God will handle everything. Those that know, knows you, they know the truth anyway. God will take care of those things. 
And I'm going to read what 1 Peter says because we should walk in a way that when someone might dare to slander you, the field that you have plowed in obedience and in faithfulness to the Lord and you've demonstrated that to people around you, they're not going to believe it anyway because we have walked a godly life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 15 says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I love the King James says a peculiar people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct, here it is, honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's a godly life. That's how we roll. That's how we should walk. The latter part of verse 11, David says, I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. And then David, here he can give a rebuke to Saul because of his obedience in the cave, and not only that, because he's walking in humility. He says, let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, I love this, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, which simply means the character is revealed by the conduct. You don't have to tell me how you are. If I've been around you long enough and lived around you long enough, I know who you are. If I hear differently, I can't believe it until I see it. David says, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? So he's castigating him a little bit right here. David concludes, and he appeals to the Lord. He says in verse 15, Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. He he said in verse 10, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So he's giving Saul at this moment an opportunity to rethink Everything that he's done, and maybe, just maybe, he will repent. But if we appeal to God's justice that the Lord should avenge me, we better be walking upright with the Lord. Because Romans 12, 18 tells us, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably peaceably with all men. That's the goal. That's how we should live. Verse 16, so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David's 
Saul, by this time, he's really bipolar. Saul is just one way one day, one way the other. But it's because of the, we're going to see his reprobate heart. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. That weeping means nothing to David. And it truly means nothing to the Lord. What Saul is doing is worldly sorrow. And we know what 1 Corinthians says, worldly sorrow never leads to repentance. The only thing that can change Saul is true repentance and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 17, then he said to David, you are more righteous, more righteous. The word more is the key word than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And once again, we can tell by Saul's word, when he said, you are more righteous than I, Saul is not righteous at all. He's not righteous at all. He's been in rebellion with the Lord. He's been banging his head against the the obedience of the Lord. And so when he said, you are more righteous than I, the rest of his words fell to the ground because true repentance doesn't bring up righteousness. When Jesus tells the parable of the publican, of the tax collector, after he finishes that parable, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't say, I'm okay. He says, no, I am the sinner. Saul doesn't do that. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those who truly repent, it's a repentance of I have sinned against you, Lord. It's nobody else's fault but my own. Please forgive me. Saul is not there and he won't get there. Verse 19, he says, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And so Saul is implicitly bringing down the the judicial justice of the Lord when he says this. David is innocent. And now I know, notice what he says, and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Once again, if you want to see a clear picture of a reprobate mind, all you have to do is look at Saul. It says in Romans 1.28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, you could say a debased mind, to do those things which are not convenient. The word is akademos. It means people who have refused to acknowledge God. They end up with minds that are disqualified from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. Saul has gone that far. When Saul first disobeyed the Lord, he could have come back to the Lord. And then the second time, when when the Lord says, the kingdom is taken from you, God is still calling him. Somewhere along the line, he has stepped over that line. And he's, he's become a man with a reprobate mind. And that results in all of the disobedience of Saul, all of the running through the will of the Lord. He just ran through that, and God has turned him over to that. Verse 20, 
He says again, and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. He's admitting it. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants, my seed after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David did many great things, but one of his high points once again is when he was in the cave of En Gedi. All because of his obedience to the Lord, all because of this testing of this trial, if David would have killed Saul in that cave, he still could have written his own narrative of the event. Nobody would have known but the men in there. Could have fixed it any way he wanted to, but God would have known. And that, once again, that was a test. David is a picture we know of Jesus Christ. And just think, the test that Jesus went through, he's allowing, that he will go through, he's allowing David to go through in the fellowship of his suffering. Remember, when Jesus was tested uh, in the wilderness with Satan, Satan's number one goal was to get Jesus to bow down to him and worship him, and he would still receive the kingdom. He would have received the kingdom. But once again, look at the cost. Our salvation was at, was at stake. Jesus, knowing that his obedience to the Father was at stake. Once again, the Lord knew the kingdom was his if he would have went through which he did go through with everything he had to go through, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the kingdom was his. But the number one temptation that the enemy throws our way, getting the crown without the cross. Jesus Christ, I cannot think of this old Baptist hymn, but some of the words says, for there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Jesus had to bear the cross in order to give us salvation. And we all have crosses to bear. My cross may be a simple cross to you. Your cross might be a big cross to me. It doesn't matter. But the cross fits the individual. Will we take the crown the correct way? by being obedient to the Lord, or we, will we look for a shortcut? And every time we look for that shortcut, you guys, every time we look for that shortcut, what it does, it diminishes our, not only our faithfulness to the Lord, but our usefulness to the Lord. That's what it does. Once again, David would have still been king, but it would, believe me, it would have diminished his usefulness to the Lord. That's exactly what happened when he slept with Bathsheba. Am I right or wrong? God used him, blessed him greatly, but even after that, it was never the same. God says the sword will never depart from your hand, from your family, and it never did. It brought a lot of 
heartache and suffering. And God does not want that for us. He doesn't want that for his children. We must walk up right before him. He gives us the grace to do those things. And his way is always better than our way. Let's pray. Father, it's always tough when we don't see the end from the beginning. We would like for it all to be written out and we know the plan. But that's not walking by faith. And Lord, you put tests in front of us that we can truly know what's inside of us. And when we see that, Lord, what you want us to do is come closer, draw closer to you, allow you to work in our hearts, to allow you to prune us, to cut off those parts that's not profitable to you, Father God. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would not spurn, we would not run from your pruning, but that we would have a circumcised, a sensitive heart that listens to you, Father, and that we would cry out to you, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but your will be done because your will is what's best for me. You love me more than anyone. So, Father, give us those sensitive hearts to listen to you. And and remember what Jesus says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. Lord, we don't have to avenge ourselves. You will do that. And you will do that in your timing. That gives us opportunity to just rest in your loving arms, knowing that you're in control of our lives, that nothing happens to us by happenstance, by surprise, because you are ruling over us. You are sovereign, and we can rest in your love. So, Lord, when turmoil is happening in our lives, when things don't go the way we want them to go when, oh my God, what am I going to do? What we should do and what I hope and pray that we will do is trust you and lean not to our own understanding. Dig in the word and draw up close to you, Father God. I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.